Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. It's always interesting being in Dubai uh, because this is one of the few places in the world which you could fairly say was a completely engineered city, mm. built rapidly to a specific vision of the future, whether mm. it is the future or not. Yeah, yeah, no, it's fascinating <laughs> coming here, isn't it? It's, it is literally like a, uh, a little glimpse into designing something from uh, not a greenfield site, obviously, you know, that would be a funny situation here in the Middle East but no literally if we're going to design something from the from the get-go what do we want it to look like it, 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 it all, it's also one of the, the biggest tensions about the future and both you and I you know I guess look at this all the time for our jobs but mm. you know there's one vision of the future which is kind of organic unpredictable chaotic mm. uh, that just sort of tends to be emergent mm. and there's another view that tends to be more top-down mm. which is like Dubai where mm. you have a plan and you execute it and you scale it mm. up and mm. no it's a very good observation and in fact I think I am probably betraying my European roots <laughs> think more the former than the latter the notion of the kind of mandated five-year plan top-down I mean obviously there's you know the Tower of London was like that a thousand years ago, um, but how long does that go? How long does that last? How long does that scale? Um, I guess we'll see in the next generation or two. Um, but no, that notion, that tension is, is very real, obviously. I'm sitting with Ben Breen, uh having a very fine cup of Arabic <laughs> coffee and some dates. Uh, we're in Dubai, as you've gathered. Uh, ben is the co-founder and director of Cognizance Center for the Future of Work. Right. Uh, he's the author of a number of fascinating books, including uh, Code Halos and more recently, the wonderfully titled What to Do When Machines Do Everything. <laughs> um, and uh, we're here hanging out. Uh, cool. Ben, it's good to finally meet you in person. Very nice to meet you as well, Mike. Yeah, <laughs> great, to, great to spend some time with you. Thank you for coming to our Cognizant community event here. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited. Uh, you, it, it's, it's always an interesting uh, moment to be kind of talking about the future of jobs uh, because it's sort of it comes at a time of, uh, of incredible tension and stress. Yeah. You know, because when you talk about the future of jobs, people immediately go, well, what's, what's going to happen to my old one? Yeah. They, they don't always relish the idea of a, yeah. of a dramatic new job title. Yeah. Uh, and, and I was really fascinated by this, this piece you wrote recently about 21 jobs of the future. Mm. When you think about some of these new jobs, and I'll get you to, to talk through a couple of them, mm. is there anything that really unites them in terms of a base level of skills or a kind of a new mindset that you think defines them? That's a great question. I mean, I think there were certain themes that came out. We did two reports, 21 Jobs of the Future and then 21 More Jobs of the Future. And there were certain themes that came out of both reports. In the first report, there was what we called the three C's, that the jobs seemed to group into three, three different types of C's. Coaching, caring, and connecting. Right. There seemed to be jobs about using technology to coach people in how they manage their money, how they manage their health, the notion that you could take the data and then you could have the human overlay, if you like, to point out, you know, this is a strength, this is a weakness, this is where you need to be focusing. That notion of man and machine in a coaching context seemed to be very real. 
the second one caring we seem to see more of these jobs coming out again trying to use technology to uh, to deal with medical issues but also to deal with this interesting thing that seems to be bubbling up I don't know whether you've seen Kate and um, Harry and um, Megan in Africa the last couple of days talking about this sort of mental health crisis that's going on in the world in the UK where I come from there's now at a government level a minister for loneliness recognizing the connection between isolation in seniors middle-aged people and health issues um, he, he may just have one job soon which is looking after Boris that's true <laughs> they're good mates they're good mates yeah um, so one of the jobs we came up with in the caring context was what we called a walker talker which was this idea that in a lot of kind of neighborhoods there are elderly people who are isolated you know their kids live somewhere else they don't have many friends locally what if there was like an uber style platform that you could just click on if you in a kind of uh, gig style uh, arrangement you're driving for uber on a friday night then on a Sunday morning when you've got an hour spare, you could literally log onto the platform and say, I'm available to go and walk your dog or talk with you, senior person. Um, and that would maybe have this impact of reducing loneliness and then ultimately the you know knock-on causal effect reducing healthcare uh, costs in, in an economy. So that caring idea was something we thought was kind of interesting. And there are a few other jobs in that bucket. And then the third C, connecting, was this notion of connecting the virtual and the physical world. This whole kind of AR, augmented reality, virtual information overlay on the real world. We think it's really interesting. We think we're kind of an early stage of that, but it's going to be very profound. In fact, I was walking around the Dubai Mall yesterday, and there's a huge kind of VR and AR gaming uh, space out there. Yeah, I yeah. checked out some of those. It's kind of cool. Some people look at that and they think it's a bit kind of clunky and ridiculous, but I think of it's a completely new dimension that we're just beginning to open up, a completely new uh, space that we're creating, which our human creative imaginations Ooh. are going to play in. So that connecting to us seemed to be another one. So, you know, those three C's were a big theme that seemed to bubble up out of this research. Uh, a, lot, a lot of those speak to the potentially the frailties or the fragility of being human yeah or, or just the kind of the analogness of of us needing to contextualize data and information and yeah and, and because because that's a very found that's a great observation it's a very foundational thought that we have in a lot of our research that I mean we're not of the school that the use of algorithms say in the medical world means that we're all going to be going to a robo doctor anytime soon you know, that sort of science fiction vision that a lot of people are scared about. I don't think anybody in their right minds wants that. Nobody wants to go and just literally see a, a piece of software or a piece of, you know, software embedded in a robot. That's just a crude. What we want is to have a human experience, but a better human experience. And that's what we think the potential upside of, uh, of being able to uh, equip, you know, in that in that sort of instance, a doctor or a nurse with better equipment, better machinery, better tools to allow them to have a better human experience. Again, it's informed by just an observation I had a couple of years ago. I lived near Boston in the US and um, 
my kid, 13, 14 year old kid, had some medical issue. We had to take the kid up to you know, one of the best hospitals in Boston. I won't, I won't name them for <laughs> legal reasons. Um, but you go and see a kind of high-end um, consultant in that sort of environment. And if you, if you think about the whole process from the beginning to actually having the, you know, the, the interaction, it hasn't changed since Dickens' days. Right. You know, if Charles Dickens came back today, he would completely experience, he would completely recognize that. A little less skull drilling. Not that much less. <laughs> um, but the point is that th that doctor, who's not using technology in a significant way, is not able to have the human experience we want because they're spending all their time filling out forms, um, uh, taking notes, uh, doing things in uh, duplicate for billing. It's so clunky. All of that stuff could be automated away. All of that stuff could be... Uh, you know, in our sort of uh, you know business terminology, we could apply robotic process automation to all of those processes, and then so in that half an hour that you see the consultant, rather than the ratio of it being sort of eighty percent admin to twenty percent the human interaction, it could be completely flipped. But arguably, it's not just the kind of the bottom end mundane tasks. It could be the higher order tasks, like like surgery. So yeah, I, I remember I had on this show a while back uh, Daniel Kraft. You know, he's one of these experts in mm. uh, future medicine, mm. and he was saying in the, in the near future. He thought that if you're going for an eye operation, you would actually feel uncomfortable if a human was doing it. Yeah, uh, I mean, you'd want to talk to a doctor, but when it actually comes to going on the procedure, just like when we get into a seven, you know, we get into a dreamliner, we know this thing's running on automatic. Yeah, no, we, we, and we I, feel comfortable about I, that. I mean, we said in what to do when machines do everything. We said that in another generation's time, and probably sooner, going to a doctor and the doctor not using advanced technology, you'll probably sue them for <coughs> medical mal malpractice. Right. Um, and so that's entirely true. And, I, and in, again, in the book, we go through all these sorts of high-end professions to point out situations like that, where we can apply technology in a very meaningful way and change the dynamic. And again, I mean, one example, I just fun kind of example I like to use is if, if you're going to a thousand dollar an hour lawyer and you know that lawyer is really using software to do all the work, the lawyer better give you a, a good meeting, you know, yeah. give, give good meeting, you know, nice coffee. Hi, hi how are you doing? Currently, if you go to that thousand dollar an hour lawyer, you're so stressed by we've got to you know do the business side of it. <laughs> it's not a very good human experience, and that's no. again if that lawyer is using Let's Machina or something to do the actual processing on the back end, then the you can have a, be a better human experience. I I know that you've been around for a while, like, like I have. You know, we I think you mentioned earlier that you joined Gartner in Is my grey showing. No, yeah, <laughs> in, in '97 or '98, so, and I, I was a I was an analyst around that time as well, and. You know, we saw the rise of job titles, you know, that were sort of had appendages to them, like, you know, digital. I mean, God help you if you had cyber attached to your job title. But but then after a while, it wasn't digital marketing, it was just marketing. Marketing, yeah, that's right. You yeah, know, yeah. and so uh, how much of these jobs of the future do you think will be distinct new professions as opposed to just if you're going to hire a lawyer or an accountant or, a, you know, a, a specialist in logistics in the future, they better be someone who understands. Yes. Algorithms well, again, in, in our book, we sort of lay that picture out. Our, our, our sort of 
frame of reference, if you like, is that, you know, roughly, say in the next, you know, the medium term, let's say the next 10, 15 years, hard to be very precise about it, but let's call it 10 years, we think that in the order of about 10% of current jobs that people do, regular people around the world do, will probably wither away through automation, through AI. Like elevator operators. Yeah, like (laughs) secretaries, switchboard operators, etc., etc., will just naturally wither away. And then we think probably a similar amount, perhaps slightly more, of new jobs, completely new jobs will be created. But the vast bulk of the bell curve, you know, 75-80%, will be you know jobs that exist today like you say a doctor a lawyer a teacher a policeman um which are just enhanced augmented made better through using the tech and the and the the commercial battle for everybody in their particular space whatever they do will be to apply the technology to get to the next performance threshold of whatever whatever it is they do and the people that don't do that will competitively lose. Well, this was the argument made by the, the economist David Auto, who said it, it wasn't that computers took jobs away from people in the 80s when they first came in. It was people with computers who took jobs that's away right, from people exactly. who didn't use yeah, them. Exactly, and that's right. And, and Auto's work is very, very, very good, obviously, very powerful and very influential on our thinking. Uh, actually, he, he, he remarked recently that he likes our cognizant jobs of the future index. I don't know whether you've seen that, whether people have seen that, where we're tracking, putting some real um, numbers, some um, quantifying the scale of jobs that are being emerged. So it was nice that we got a little tip of the hat from him on that. Um, But also in our work, we, uh, you know that phrase, good artists copy, great artists steal. So we stole... um, (laughs) Uh, this lovely phrase from Kevin Kelly, the, the founder of Wired magazine. He, he, he had this phrase a couple of years ago, X plus AI. Yeah. So X is whatever it is you do. You're a doctor, that's your X. You're a lawyer, that's your X. X plus AI, that's the algorithm for the future of work. And again, I think that's a great way, a simple way of thinking about it. That, and, and anybody who's been around for any period of time, like you and I, as you just said, um, you know, we've seen the... Uh, uh, introduction of new tools routinely and we've you know just naturally learnt these things and we know that people who haven't learnt these new things and haven't adapted and evolved and, and added those things into their X they fall by the wayside I mean one perfect example of this is that a lot of people talk about design thinking and the significance of design thinking that's been one of the big kind of memes if you like in tech for the last few years i've got a buddy one of my best friends from school who was a designer a graphic designer um he now can't get any work same middle-aged you know mid-50s guy his career is completely dried up because he didn't adapt and introduce the new tools into the design world. He just right. wanted to do annual reports in the traditional way. But we're now in an, in an era of Canva and that's you know, right, automated Canva, exactly, design. Can, can, that's right, exactly. <laughs> and so that's a perfect example of where somebody who had an, a really good X, but they didn't add in the new ingredients, and then that act, that x withers yeah and and uh, when i've talked to him about this it's been kind of confusing to him that i said well you must be doing so great because design thinking is like the hottest thing in the whole world but but actually the valuable thing that he's got to sell is not the output but the process 
Like he, he could actually sell the process to yeah, he you know, could, he to could, executives. I mean, I, I don't want <laughs> yeah, I don't want to pick pick on the guy. Or I feel bad for him in a way because, but he didn't keep up with the 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 development, the evolutionary curve in his industry. And I, again, to me, that's a cautionary tale. And if you think you can just continue to do it, I mean, it's kind of common sense, but it's. You know, it's the common sense that's not common, as Voltaire put it. You know. Yeah, but it's not just the, I guess, the laggards who refuse to adapt. The there's going to be, as, as we were discussing before, an increasing struggle to grab the next generation of talent, as they they make difficult choices about where they actually devote their time and efforts. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the war for talent is is such an old trope. Yeah. Um, you know, we were speaking about these. You know, what what's old is new again. I yeah. I think that McKinsey article came out in the late nineties. Yeah. You know, at the height of the first dot com yeah. boom. Yeah. But it means something different now, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Don't you think? No, I think it's it's very real. Um, and I see this on my travels a lot. The big corporations, big public sector organisations, really struggling to get that next generation of talent in. And that next generation of talent, it seems to be a pretty strong. Venn diagram overlap between that generation of talent and this new generation of social warriors. And do, do these social warriors want to work for a bank? Do they want to work for an insurance company? Do they want to work let's, for the let's, government? Let's get into the social warrior bit in a second, mm. um, because I think that's, that's quite an interesting and provocative uh, uh, issue for a lot of organizations. Yeah. But, but, but just on the talent itself, I mean, the, part of the problem is, is that the kinds of jobs that are valuable, especially to a company going through digital transformation, yeah. whether it's specialists in machine learning or data or um, uh, even change management and culture, mm. are just as valuable whether they're at a Google or a Facebook or a, or a bank or mm. a logistics company or a retailer. Mm. I mean, they're, mm. they're not industry specific. Mm. And so there truly, truly is a struggle to, to get those kinds of people. Yeah, and I think if you've got those high-end skills in any of those disciplines, you can kind of call your own number now. You can write your own meal ticket, and there's such demand. Is it just money? For this new next generation, what are you seeing? Is well, so that leads us into the social worry, oh, this yeah. kind of purpose thing. But, but, but as you say, before we get there, I think the, the such, such demand in that next generation fang vendor plus environment on the supply side, if you like, of the tech industry, they're soaking up so much of that digital talent pool at the moment, there's not that much left over for the big banks, the big insurance companies, the big airlines, the big old school retailers. I heard a, a, a brilliant, um, I mean, this is anecdotal, but uh, I, I met with the CEO of a new AI-based um, startup in New York a little while ago they're still in stealth, so I can't mention their name, but they're probably one of the best funded companies I've ever met in my life. And the CEO told me that basically, it's a bit like, um, you know, in sports, in football, soccer, cricket, rugby, nowadays it's so professionalized that there's like talent uh, spotting, scouting <laughs> from kids in school. So you're not, you know, you used to scout people out of university, now, the high-end people are scouting people out of school. Like, you know, footballers are signed up at seven years old nowadays, you know, um, by Barcelona and Real Madrid and stuff. So this guy said to me that there's basically 15 people that come out of the world's universities nowadays on an annual basis who are considered to be, you know, Lionel Messi's, Messi's of AI. 15 people in the world. 
that all the big companies know these guys are coming. Those 15 people, five of them want to stay in academia. Right. Five of them get signed up by Google immediately as a graduate, starting salary $5 million US. Oh my gosh. So the rest of the world, banks, airlines, government departments, retailers, cognizant, we're fighting over five people and the entry price is $5 million for those people. So that's what I mean is there's so much demand for that. I mean, that's but, obviously but, but the, that, I, that's I, the cream I, of the crop. I, but, the, you know, the next 10,000 people beneath that, those people are still being soaked up by the supply chain. I mean, I, I, I wonder about what, how, uh, how long term that is because there's, there's certain people you need who are brilliant enough to do fundamental and primary research yep. on these technologies. Yep. But we're rapidly getting to the point that a, a lot of AI and machine learning is becoming a platform. Yeah, package. You know, product AI as a service. Yeah. yeah. You know, so you can see those guys, those, you know, uh, men and women are worth $5 million each because they're creating a 500 million platform. Yeah. But then the kinds of people who need to interrogate, use, and analyze those tools yeah. don't need to have the same. No, that's exactly right. Caliber. No, it's a good observation. So you have the arms developers. <laughs> They're the arms developers. Then you have the arms sellers, and that's kind of cognizant and other people on the supply side. And you have the foot soldiers. And then you have the arms users, the people <laughs> in the armies, the people in the banks, the people in the... So you're right. My point is simply that because the technology is developing so fast and moving so fast at the high end, that that trickle down is still kind of a work in progress. And because there's so much demand at the high end of the, of the waterfall, if you, in this analogy, that, that that person who in 10 years will probably go to a bank is still being sucked up to go and work into the supply side. And so there's a, this skills gap that we we're sort of talking about is very, very real yeah. because in this interregnum between where we are now and where we'll be in 10 years time, if you're a midline retailer and you can't get any talent from vendors, you can't hire any in, I mean, where do no. you go? It's an it's existential and, problem. And it hasn't stabilized the extent that you can buy it as a service. It isn't a package yet. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're still, we're, we're still uh, a way out of it becoming a package-based pack, business. We're still at that point, you know, at, and, and it's probably going to take longer than it did in the kind of ERP wave yeah. for it to go from relational databases into you buying SAP R3. But even if you're a vendor or, or, or a developer, you know, as we were, we were talking about before, you, you're, you're fighting with a new fact that the talent may not necessarily want a job either. That's right. Do, do they want to work 40 hours or 70 hours a week for a bank? Do they want to... Or they just want to contribute to GitHub. Do they want to be on <laughs> GitHub? Do they want to be on, in a Red Hat GitHub open source project program platform? Do they want to work 20 hours a week? Do they want to work 10 hours a week? I saw a great um, article the other day about um, bug hunters, you know, bounty hunters. Yeah. This guy, 27-year-old guy, mm -hmm making $700,000 a year, working 10 hours a week. You know, so does that guy, I know he doesn't want to work for a bank. I mean, so again, that th this sort of dislocation is very real. And I think some people are wishing it away and imagining it isn't real, but I just see evidence of it everywhere I go. And it's a big existential issue. And, and in fact, um, we're thinking, more and more about this issue of 
how do we take the existing IT skills base and how do we sort of, I, I call them, they're the originals, and how do we make them digitals? You know, how do we make them fully in tune with this new stuff? And I think that's going to be a big opportunity and challenge well, for lots of kind of companies going forward. This sort of brings us on to the, the kind of the deeper questions around the future of work, not so much the job itself, mm. but the structure of organizations. Mm. I mean, you know, I'm always interested in how organizational design takes cues from um, technology, Yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and if you look at the way we manage um, networks and infrastructure, um, uh, the rise of uh, you know Kubernetes and you know mm. th th these sort of very decentralized programmatic ways of managing infrastructure, mm. we still haven't managed to find a similar model in the human organization yeah, yeah, yeah. that that works in the same way. Yeah, no, I love that observation. It's very very cool. Um, we've just written this new report called From and To, yeah. sort of describing from where we are and then to where we're going. And one of the phrases we used and that was from the hierarchy to the wirearchy and this notion that because for the reasons you say the technology wiring of an organization is making the sort of traditional hierarchy uh, command and control model less and less relevant and there's a sort of tension there's going to be a transition there but no you're absolutely right I mean you, you, you know the I mean I, I remember in Gartner 20 years ago us having this sort of vision this notion of loosely coupled open APIs, kind of the web services notion <laughs> as it was just emerging. And that theory has been around for a long time and now it's sort of coming real with microservices and as you say containers. Um, and that and then this this GitHub open source model and that fragmentation seems to be happening on the edge of a large organization. For but infrastructure, but but not for people. Yeah, I mean, you well, see for some people, people yeah. at the top, no. People no. at the bottom, yeah, like agile. Yeah, I, I yeah. Mean, you know, it's interesting that you see broader organisations picking up the concept of agile mm. and now applying it to marketing teams. Mm. And I, I, it, that's been an easy thing for them to digest, mm. but but really at its heart, the extreme form of hierarchy or hol holacracy. Mm. Just, there isn't a lot of great examples no, of where that hasn't led to a kind of a Lord of the Flies type. That's right. No, <laughs> no, and ultimately, there will always have to be... I mean, there's, there's a principle in the military, isn't there? And I forget I forget the author of this or where the, the complete provenance of it, but the notion that to be extremely flexible, you have to be extremely rigid in the core. Right. Um, and perhaps that's going to be the balance we'll get to. We'll have a very kind of structured, rigid core, but then everything around that will be very, very fluid and will be well, project-based kind well, of approach. Well, I mean, and, and that in itself is, is potentially a source of concern. I, I mean, when, you, when I look at an organization like Amazon, I mean, already today you could say that, you know, Amazon employs, I think, almost over a million people now. But the core, is actually relatively small yeah. and shrinking, mm. um, but but you know there'll be millions of people that are in some ways employees of Amazon mm. or you know um, freelancers mm. or deliverers mm. or. Well, again, I mean the sort of Boeing's not a great example nowadays, but Boeing's obviously moved into that very very subcontractor-based model, <laughs> and they've had their challenges with that, and that model kind of th th that thinking. Uh, came into the IT industry 20 years ago and that's what 
propelled Tim Cook to the top of Apple, the notion of managing the supply chain, yeah. uh, geographically dispersed supply chain. That's, that's why um, Jobs brought him in, to manage that. Um, and again, that model seems to be changing now. Apple have just announced they're going to be building the next generation phone in, in the States, the it great orange as leader. It, as you're talking, that, uh, that you know, I, you almost have this idea that Steve Jobs designed the perfect iPhone, and he said, okay, I want you to release this phone over 10 years bit by bit, <laughs> <laughs> using the supply chain as, as you know, le leverage, take, take the cost out of the system. Maybe but. he could see <laughs> where that would go, yeah. No, I mean, I, the organizational structure thing, I, I, I personally spend less time thinking about that, worrying about that, because like you say, and it's a good pushback, that these theories have floated around a long time, but at the end of the day you still need somebody to sign off your expenses and approve your budget and approve your promotion. I, you know, the notion we're going to be in a leaderless environment anytime soon is probably unrealistic. And, and maybe I guess to bring this full circle is the difference between a Dubai and a London or a Dubai and a Mumbai that you know you can have these top-down approaches to the future but in the end you're probably better off investing in the grassroots emergent strategies and yeah, seeing let, what let that a, takes. Let you. a thousand flowers uh, blossom, yeah. No, I mean again that's certainly true um, in London and elsewhere the whole notion of outsourced R&D. I mean, that's basically what fintech is in London. You know, the big banks are watching all these small fintech things, and the second anybody gets traction and seems to have something good, particularly as the public IPO markets close down, and you know, we're talking in the week of WeWork imploding. That that's clearly forcing more and more of the serious money to 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 flee from the public markets. The big money is now going private, and you know, private equity, hedge funds, um, and so for the fintechs and the other, you know, new techs who are basically outsourced R and D, the only uh, vesting opportunity they have now is to be bought by a bank or by Google or Amazon, because the notion that they're going to go through a traditional IPO, I mean, that's I think that's that model's dying on the vine as well. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. Mm -hmm.